Let the good news come now, O Father, not only with word, but with power, with the fullest and deepest of assurance. Holy Spirit, rest on this moment so that we might not only know you, but love you and serve you. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are concluding our series called The Table today. And as we are concluding this series, we've been walking through the contrast of what fellowship and friendship looks like in partnership with Jesus and how different that is from what fellowship looks like from just kind of the ways of the world that left to our own devices. Fellowship looks quite different than the intentional kind of community that Jesus pulls together. And so with this metaphor of the table, we've talked about there are these certain qualities that are present, things like trust and accountability and belonging and laughter and encouragement. And so today we're talking about encouragement. And I'd like to begin with a question, and I'm going to have you do kind of an audience participation, congregational action version of this question. I want you to think of who is someone who encouraged you? Maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a teacher for a class that you really liked. But what I'd like for you to do is to think whether it's a parent or a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, whoever it is, a friend, a coworker, think of the name of the person who somebody in your life encouraged you along the way. And I want you to turn to somebody next to you and share with them someone who encouraged you. Ready, set, go. I'd like to share with you somebody who encouraged me in my life. When I was becoming a teenager, things started to change a little bit in our family's rhythm and pattern. We have, ever since I was born, starting just at three months old, all the way up till I was a teenager, we went to the same family Christian camp every year. And it wasn't just family camp in general. It was Family Camp for Artists. It was known as the Christians and Crafts Conference. How about that for a name? And it was a conference that was geared towards family fellowship, all with people with artistic ability. And you think about my mom, she can hand make beautiful pottery and jewelry. My dad is a photographer and a watercolor person. My sister has incredible penmanship and calligraphy and basically can do any of the different art forms that you might imagine. In fact, she decided to get an art history degree, go to graduate school in art history degree. And my sister's worked for the Dallas Museum of Art for about two decades now. And then there's me. I have zero goose egg artistic ability at all. And so we would go to this conference every year and I would kind of slog through the classes. And we would not only go as a nuclear family, but extended family would go. And my grandfather turned to my folks this one year and he's like, you know, Rich is getting a little older and, um, you know, he doesn't like any of this art stuff. Quite frankly, he's not any good at any of this art stuff. And uh, we're going to lose Rich. Like, Rich is going to get bored. He's going to start causing trouble. It's just not a good thing. Why don't you let me deal with Rich? So my grandfather set aside the task that he normally did. He would actually teach the stained glass making class. And he said that I was his project for the week. And I had no idea what that meant. But he said, after breakfast, you show up at our hotel room. So I got there after breakfast, knocked on the door, opened the door, and on the inside of that door was kind of a makeshift 1980s version of a TV kind of video kind of studio. 
And so there was this humongous video camera on a tripod. There was this giant cathode ray tube TV that was in there. And there was this kind of little section over in the corner that had been kind of partitioned off. He walked in. He said, sit down. He held out three cards. He said, pick a card, any card. I pulled one of the cards out. It had a topic on it. I'm kind of looking at it. I'm looking at him. And he said, you have five minutes to prepare a five-minute speech that you're going to give. Ready, set, go. And so for five minutes, I had to prepare working on a speech that I was going to deliver. Got up, delivered the five-minute speech. He videotaped the speech. He made me watch it. He asked me to kind of critique myself. I did. He said, that's great. You have five minutes more to work on the same speech to make it better to give another five-minute speech on the same topic. Ready, set, go. We did that again. He videotaped it. We'd watch it together. This time, he critiqued it. He said, that's good. We're going to do it again. And so a third time, we did it again. And then we finished it. And you know what he did after that? He held up the other two cards, and he said, pick a card, any card. <laughs> My grandfather put me through public speaking boot camp at the age of 14 years old. My grandfather saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. My grandfather believed something about me that I didn't believe about myself. My grandfather knew something about me that I didn't know about myself. And I'll never forget what it was like at the First Presbyterian Church of Houston on the day that I was ordained. That was my grandparents' church that they attended for about 50 years. I remember him sitting in the pew over there while I'm standing on the chancel steps. And uh, Vic Pence was the one who actually ordained me into ministry. And I remember my grandfather sitting there with his big old goofy Irish grin on his face and his big shiny bald head. He was just popping with joy in that moment. And it all started because he encouraged me. He challenged me. And he knew something about me that I really needed to know. To a certain degree, every single one of us are the sum total of the encouragements that other people have poured into our lives. And I'll bet you can look back over your own life and think of the different encouragements that were actually turning points, different trajectories in the way that your life has changed. And so there's an important command in the Bible. It says to encourage one another and to build each other up. And I'll bet that we need this command more than ever that we live in a world of despair and criticism and blame, and we need more than ever to not tear things down, but to build them up and to encourage one another. And so I'd like to share with you today a story from the Bible of great encouragement, but it requires me sharing you a little backstory in order to understand it. And in addition to that, it's a story that actually doesn't begin with encouragement. It begins with discouragement. For the better part of three years, the Apostle Peter follows Jesus around. And as he does so, he is learning from Jesus. He is watching Jesus. He's observing him. He even confesses. He's the first of the disciples to confess who Jesus really is. And so Peter has seen some amazing things. His loyalty is at an all-time high. Peter's the one of those people that's not afraid to get his feet wet. He's not afraid to jump with both feet out of the boat. 
He's not afraid to speak his mind. He doesn't get it right 100% of the time, but he's always going to kind of lean on proactivity. And so as they're walking to Jerusalem and Jesus tells them, you know what? Things are going to start getting hard. This is going to be a difficult road to walk. And so Peter says, as Jesus is warning them of this, he says this scripture, even if all fall away, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Sure enough, things do get really hard. Jesus is arrested, and in that moment, Peter is the first to pull out a sword. He's not going down without a fight, but after Jesus is taken away from him, something starts to change within Peter. And by the glow of the embers of a campfire outside of the high priest Caiaphas's house, when Jesus is under house arrest, Peter is asked not once, not twice, but three times, hey, aren't you that guy that is with Jesus of Nazareth? And three times, Peter lies through his teeth to cover his own tracks. And in doing so, he denies his Lord. Here was the Messiah in his moment of need. Here was his rabbi, his teacher, his Lord in a moment when he could stick up for him. And yet at the end of the day, Peter's no more than a coward. Darkness ensues. Jesus dies a criminal death. Early Sunday morning, nobody expecting it. With earthquakes and Easter joy, Jesus comes back to life. And he presents himself on several occasions to not only the disciples, but to others as well. And in light of this, and in light of all the promises, what does Peter do in response to having seen the lame walk, the blind to get their sight restored, that the dead have come back to life, and now Jesus is back with him? What does Peter do? Does he start his kind of evangelism crusade? No. He goes back home, and he goes back to what he used to do before he even knew Jesus. He went back to fishing. Man's got to make a living after all. But this isn't just about putting bread on the table. This is Peter with a severed relationship and a broken heart. He goes back to what life was like before Jesus. It's a tragic decision to go back to that moment. And so Jesus is going to have to reach out and encourage Peter for him to become the person that God has in store for him. And so while Peter is fishing, Jesus, as a mysterious figure, encourages them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat, something that would remind the disciples of a moment long ago. And when they start to pull the net, it is so full that they can barely haul it in. And then in John chapter 1, it says this. When the disciples landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. See, one thing you can count on is fishermen will always tell you how big the fish were and exactly how many they caught. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. May God bless not only the hearing, but the receiving and the doing of his word. Here we come to the end of the Gospel of John. And you might need to recall the beginning of the Gospel of John, that the Gospel of John begins with the most sweeping cosmic perspective possible. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing has come into being. And what has come into being through him was life. And that life was the light of all people, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't extinguish it. And then Jesus is here and he's full of glory, the glory of a father's only son, that he's full of grace and truth, that there's this huge cosmic sweeping at the beginning of the gospel of John. It's like a recreation, a retelling of a new dawn and a new era. It's as big as it possibly gets. And the invitation to the beginning of the Gospel of John is not only grand, it is come and see, come and see, come and see. And then throughout the Gospel of John, things narrow more and more and more and time slows down almost to a crawl on the cross and the empty tomb. And then this is the last story. This is the final chapter, the last little sequence and time compresses into this one moment. And what began as a grand sweeping view of creation and come and see now has come to this this one moment, come and have breakfast. What? Breakfast is the culmination of discipleship? Breakfast is the most ordinary and important meal of the day. People will argue that the most intimate meal you can share might be a candlelight dinner in a fancy restaurant. I don't think that's the case. The most intimate and personal meal that you will ever eat is breakfast. It's where your guard is fully down. Maybe you haven't done your hair or your makeup or gotten yourself ready yet. Jesus is going to meet Peter at breakfast. And he meets him at breakfast with the most personal of questions. Three different times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I want to show you an image of a man who means a great deal to me. His name is Dallas Willard. 
When I was a, early on in my ministry, I was taking a doctoral class on spirituality. And while I was taking this class, it wasn't just kind of the academic learning portion of it. They also gave an opportunity for people to engage in spiritual direction. And I started a mentorship relationship with Dallas Willard. And in that first session, I confessed to Dallas that I felt like my prayer life was pretty dry. And he said, I know. I'm like, what do you mean that you know? And he said, Rich, so much of your training, so much of who you are is skills-based. There has to be more to it than giftedness. He said, Rich, it sounds like to me that you feel like you're more working for God than you are working with God. And there's a difference. People who work together have a lot to talk about. And as long as you're working for God instead of with Him, I don't imagine that there would be a lot of vitality to your prayer life. And then he took out an old, tattered Bible. And he turned to John chapter 21 and he read me the very passage that we read today. And holding up that Bible, he looked at me and he said, Rich, God is asking you the question, do you love me? Or is it that you just say that you love him? Because those are two very different things. Do you love me? God asks. And he asks it at the vulnerable moment of breakfast. In spite of all that we've done wrong. And I remember the tears starting to come down my cheeks as Dallas asked that question, do you, do you love me? At that moment, I was a really good church professional. But I was learning still what it means to be a disciple and to be a pastor. And you can't do that without love. Dallas said, you'll never be able to fake your way through a marriage of love for very long. Your wife will always be able to tell you whether or not you really love her. And it's the same way with God. He can always tell. You can't fake it. Do you love me? Notice that what Peter gets in response to these questions and is not probably what he expected. There was not a whole lot of consolation, like there, there, it's gonna be okay. Did you notice the response? There's, do you love me? And what's the response to each of those? Feed my sheep, tend my flock. That is not so much consolation that Peter needs as much as he needs vocation. God's got a job for him to do, and they're gonna do it together. Feed my sheep. I believe that we live in a world that is desperately needing of the tending of the flock right now. 
that our communities are becoming ever more fragmented. This was in the New York Times just today in describing our world today. Wage stagnation in an era of unprecedented wealth, a culture of male worklessness in which older men take disability and young men live with their parents and play video games, an epidemic of drug abuse, a historically low birth rate, a withdrawal from marriage and civic engagement and religious practice, a decline in life expectancy and a rise in suicide. Is it me or does our community need encouragement now more than ever, that we need for God to come alongside us and to help us to pull together the different pieces that our love of God and our feeding of others are the kinds of things that have to go hand in hand, that you can't truly feed people without loving God and you can't truly love God without feeding and tending to his flock. And this is what our world is looking for when it looks to the church. Do these things go together? I want to introduce you to somebody by the name of J.D. Vance. He's written a blockbuster best-selling book, a memoir called Hillbilly Elegy. And in this fantastically written book, um, he chronicles the very heartbreaking journey of what it was like for him to grow up in kind of rural poverty that moved to urban poverty from Kentucky roots to Middlebury, Ohio, to where the Rust Belt is. And one of the things that he talks about was that it was not so much the failing schools that was his main problem, it was the fracture of his family that was his greatest struggle. His father figures were literally a, a revolving door of romantic figures that were constantly in and out of their lives. Different degrees of helpfulness and benign neglect. His mother struggles with substance abuse and tendencies towards violence. There's one heartbreaking scene where he goes with his mom in the car after one bender that she's been on and she's going to go buy him some football cards, and they get in an argument in the car, and J.D. gets so scared that his mom is going to kill him that he literally has to kind of throw himself out of the car in a safe moment and run through fields to try to find a farmhouse and to kind of blockade the door and to say, you know, don't let her in, call 911, I think my mom is going to kill me. It was in this moment that J.D. had some strategic people placed in his life to help out. And he writes this, my grandparents, Mama and Papa, were without question or qualification the best things that ever happened to me. They spent the last two decades of their lives showing me the value of love and stability and teaching me the life lessons that most people learn from their parents. I want to show you an image here of what Mama looked like. This is JD's hero. She's a flawed woman. She's a hilarious woman. She's a loyal woman. Early on, Mama's house was the place that JD would go where he could always get kind of a snack for some nourishment as well as some life lessons as well as some time to be able to do some homework. It was his rock, his anchor in early childhood. And when the wheels of his life fell off, it was in that moment that in high school, he went to go live with his mama. 
Otherwise, he would have had to have gone to the foster care system. His mamma read the Bible faithfully every day. But she distrusted the local church. She thought that all pastors and leaders were crooks. And so it wasn't until J.D. got to the Marines and enlisted that he experienced community, fellowship for the first time. And reflecting upon it, he writes this, to laugh and joke with the people I loved most as they scarfed down the meal that I'd provided gave me a feeling of joy and accomplishment that words can't possibly describe. And at this point in the memoir, I'm so elated that J.D. got to experience community for the first time. And at the same time, I was so sad because we as the church, we weren't providing that for this family. That it took the Marines for him to be introduced to real brotherhood real fellowship, real friendship. Eventually, J.D. ends up going not just to undergraduate school, but to an Ivy League law school and becomes an incredible success story of the American dream. And in reflecting back on it all, he says this, the message of Christian love might just save kids like me before it's too late. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you think with Peachtree's legacy of commitment to vulnerable children, that this speaks to us and our moment in time? And what would it be like for us, not with programs, but with tables, to create little beacons of encouragement in a world that's filled with such criticism? What would it be like for us to build up people instead of tearing them down? What would it be like for us to be a community that blesses instead of blames? I think there are many other families and many other children out there that are desperately today looking for authentic friendship. And the question is, will we encourage them and love them because of our love for God before it's too late? Let's pray together. A loving God and Father, we're so grateful for the people who have encouraged us on our journey of faith. I thank you for my grandfather. I thank you for the people who see things in us, believe things about us, know things about us before, before we even know them.
Lord, I pray for anybody here who, like Peter, has fallen short of what we declare that we will do. And God, I lift up a person here in this room who maybe has said that they love you, but they know in their heart right now, the minute they're confronted with that question, that they don't really love you, not yet. Will you break that person's heart for you right now? Lord, so many of us have not connected the dots of our love for you and what we do on a daily basis. Help us to follow you wherever that will lead. May we feed your people. And may we encourage one another and build each other up. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.